I V M. Welcome, Khushamadeed. You are watching The Note, and this time I have a very, very special guest on this episode of The Note. The writer of this book that is extremely special to me, born a Muslim, some truths about Islam in India, Ghazala Wahab. Ghazala, as I was just telling you, this is perhaps one book in recent times that has impacted me a lot, and that's why I thought just to move away from tradition of The Note, uh, I get you on this episode and talk to you about a lot of issues that your book raises. Thank you so much, first of all, for being on the note. Thank you so much for calling me, Maruk. It's an absolute pleasure. Wonderful. I know the situation around us is unprecedented. We're in the middle of perhaps one of our biggest humanitarian crises. Uh, but despite that, I wanted to talk to you about this book because it also raises a lot of issues that perhaps in due course of time we'll find almost kind of intertwining with where this crisis goes. Uh, but I want to start by asking you, Ghazala. What made you write this book? You know, I was kind of veering towards this book uh, in the course of my normal career, which is uh, to do with national security and defense. Uh, in the last uh, several years, as the focus on terrorism increased, I was driven to write on terrorism issues of internal security. And I realized that almost 50% of what we were fed by popular uh, media or through official discourse was a uh, part of propaganda. There was not a, not, you know, not even a grain of truth in what was being said. Mm. And uh, that kind of brought me to uh, in more detail into the subject of why we are doing this propaganda. Obviously, there is an agenda behind uh, what is being done. And as I did more and more reading on the subject, more research on the subject, I realized it was a two-way traffic that even the Muslim conservative or let's say, radical people were using the same tools of propaganda to mislead their own people. So basically, it was a culmination of all these things that were happening. So as I have said before also, my first target audience was uh, fellow Muslims because I felt that if they could be put wise, if they could be told that how they are being misled by a certain vested interests within their own community, they could probably... Uh, be made to rethink their choices, rethink their behavior, their attitude, not only towards their own religion, but also towards the way they relate to other people. But uh, one thing led to another, and uh, this is how the book shaped up, because uh, I realized that addressing only one part of the society is not going to yield anything. We have to talk to everybody and kind of build some sort of a conversational bridge where people could ask questions of each other if they have doubts, instead of just blindly believing what is being fed to them. I'll come to your original intention and where that led you eventually, and where that original intention of what you wanted to do for the Muslim community, where does that go? But I want to start at the very beginning, uh, and it's a terrifying introduction in your, in your book about the riots uh, in your hometown. And what perhaps hit me the most um, is the fact that how your father, your family felt a betrayal, primarily by the very people who you considered as friends, that when it came to a riot, it was more about religion and not human relationships. That kind of hit me because I have my entire life believed in human relations and I believe a lot of other people also do. Just talk about that. Uh, you know, at that point, I also felt it was a betrayal. But uh, while I was writing this and I was revisiting the whole thing, 
I feel that it, the, more than the sense of betrayal, my father personally felt was being shown his position in the society. That mm-hmm. this is where you belong. Eventually, mm-hmm. this is how you will be judged always. Whether you are rich or you're famous or you're successful or you're a philanthropist, a person who's doing work in the community, outside your own community also. So basically, that was the most devastating part that you can cover as much distance as you want in life in terms of your uh, mental makeup, in terms of your uh, career, economic situation. But if the other wants to put you in a bracket, if they want to judge you in a particular way, Mm. uh, then the onus of how you are viewed is not on you, it's on the other person. You can try whatever you want. But if the other person has decided to put you in a bracket, you will always remain in that bracket. So this change of attitude has to come from the other side. I mean, I hear a lot of people say Muslims need to study, Muslims need to be more progressive. But the point is you can do whatever you want. If you have been put in a certain place, uh, there's nothing you can do to change that. So so this whole world, the situation, the riot, uh, actually, to be honest, uh, the district administration reacted or behaved in the manner that they were told to. Or, you know, those in our society, we have, in Indian society, we have a concept of a few hours where the administration and everybody says, okay, there's a window of one hour, two hours, and uh, then we'll come in, uh, you know, the ad- mm. law and order will take mm. its course. And this has happened consistently, riot after riot, since our independence, that there is always this small window which is given to a certain group of people to vent their anger or do whatever. Mm. As far as the neighbors are concerned, I think they their intentions or their concern was coming from a good place because they also felt that uh, they would not have the courage to stick their neck out. And I feel probably it's unreasonable to expect somebody to stick their neck out for you. Uh, when you are not sure whether you would be able to do the same for them if push comes to shove. I mean, so basically, in a situation like this, everybody is on his or her own. So I think... uh, Very interesting point. It's basically, uh, when I was writing, I realized that uh, what I thought as a child was really not what actually could have been the real situation then. Hmm. Uh, Everybody was driven by their own fears, by their own compulsions whether there were orders from the superiors or whether they were, you know, sudden feeling of your own community yet we have to stick mm. together and mm. that other person is of the other person. So it could be a culmination or it could be a combination of all these factors. All these factors. But does your memory of this riot also in a way, you know, coincide with what you perhaps one would call as the building of fear in the Indian Muslim? Would you say that it comes around the same time or has it been there for much longer? See, for me, the fear fortunately did not uh, take root. Even after this incident, we covered it. We continue to live in that same place, in the same Mm. area, same neighborhood, same people. And we have the most amicable relations with one another. Mm. uh, And we continue to be the only Muslim family in that area. And uh, now, because... uh, so many years have passed. A lot of people have died uh, in the mm. neighborhood. So my parents are the senior most citizens in that neighborhood. 
So they are given the kind of respect you'd expect the senior most person in a neighborhood to have. You know, they are being they're consulted for various issues. Mm. Last year during the lockdown, the entire neighborhood, the youngsters, they, they took charge of, you know, supplying goods to everybody's houses because how could elderly people go out? Though right. my brother less with them, but the neighborhood boys, they had formed a group and they had divided the duties that, okay, so milk will be fetched by one boy in the morning for everybody. Vegetables are will be fetched by another one. Medicines would be fetched by one. So they worked together as a cohesive neighborhood irrespective of religion. Mm-hmm. So this was a very nice and a heartening thing. As far as fear is concerned, maybe I have been insular. So I have not really felt this fear. I have never felt earlier also, and I do not feel it even today. Maybe mm. because of certain privileges I have enjoyed in my life, in my career. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, as far as my family is concerned and what I have heard from them in conversations, a certain degree of fear has always been there. I have mm. narrated an incident of Eid uh, in my house and this was a year after the uh, Muradabad incident. Mm. So if that is not fear, then what is? That even right. a small, you know, the biggest celebration of your um, community uh, and you are driven not by happiness or uh, cheer. You're driven by fear mm. in your celebration. So I think this fear has been part of a um, uh, Muslim psyche always. Maybe not so widespread as it is now or has been become now in the last mm. uh, seven years. But an average Muslim has always been cautious about how he or she is viewed and how people perceive him or her which is why this constant assertion of saying that I am a moderate, you know, I am not like this. No, but I I want to come in here because I I want to, you know, focus on this moderate part in just a bit. I want to ask you that you speak about your insularity or privilege, and I can relate to that because I sense that privilege that I have because I don't feel that fear. doesn't mean that I don't see others experiencing it. Do you see this fear across the country? Because there are certain parts of the country where I don't sense that as much as I perhaps would in the Hindi heartland, perhaps, or maybe slightly up north. Has that been your experience as well? Yes. See, in the southern part of the country, I don't think uh, the Muslim community has suffered as much of religious profiling. I'm not even talking of violence. I'm just talking of everyday prejudice. I don't think they have faced that. Mm. Uh, In the northern belt also, I would say, and this is a realization I have come to over a period of time, that even in this Hindi uh, belt, which we would normally presume to be very communally volatile, Mm. the fear has not been as widespread as, say, a Muslim in Maharashtra. And I, when I was growing up, part of my family lives in Bombay. My mother's side of the family lives in Bombay. And we have been, as kids, going to Bombay every year for our vacation. The difference I used to see in Bombay and Agra was huge. Uh, The Muslims in Bombay were very conscious of their Muslim identity. Hmm. Uh, Even aggressively. Almost wearing it on their sleeve. And as I grew up, I realized that this aggression or this uh, assertion of identity came from a place of fear. Because they would always hobnob among their own kind. My Mm. own family only had friends among Muslims. For education, they tried uh, to go to Muslim institutions. And there are a lot of very um, 
good Muslim institutions in Bombay, primarily because they felt that the community needed institutions of their own, which is not the case so much in, uh, say, UP. Uh, you have Aligarh University and we have Jamia in uh, Delhi. Right. But on an average, Muslim who could afford would send their child to a mixed school, whether it's a convent school or right. it's a public school. But that was not the case in my uh, family in Bombay. They were always trying to uh, stick to their own kind. And it was not just my family because the kind they were sticking with all Muslims. So they were also trying to be together, even if they lived in mixed localities at some point. And, mm. But the aim was to move to an area where there are more Muslims. Mm. In direct contrast to us, where he grew up in a Muslim area, but our aim was to move into a mixed locality as and when we could. Mm. And I sense this happening in most Muslims in this region. I mean, from Agra, I came to uh, Delhi. I lived in Delhi for so many years. I never faced any problem finding an accommodation. Mm. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I was an odd person out or how it happened, but I never found any- Even I didn't. In Bombay, I've never had a problem finding yeah. any accommodation. Oh, so I, I don't know whether I'm an exception or there are many more like me. I have no idea. So I am one. <laughs> I've never <laughs> found uh, any problems. I lived in and rented accommodations for almost 11 years till, until we bought a place. And uh, so I, I, when I used to hear about people having problems and I do not doubt them because mm. my own cousins had problems. Yes. Uh, subsequently. So I know people have problems finding accommodation. Uh, so, okay, coming back to my point. So what I feel that this fear or this assertion of your identity or identifying yourself as a particular group and sticking to that hmm. uh, was not as rampant even in the Hindi belt until a few years ago. It has hmm. become more pronounced now. Certain states of India were always volatile, Gujarat being one of them, Maharashtra being another one. Parts of Madhya Pradesh have always been very bad. Parts of Bihar have been very bad. But uh, Southern India and uh, UP, most of UP was not as bad as it is now. But do you also see a monetary factor here? Do you see a class divide perhaps within Muslims also? Those who are well off don't really sense this fear. They might sense a certain kind of categorization or people looking at them oddly, but they don't necessarily face that alienation. Do you also see there a class divide being in this fear factor? Absolutely. I think class and class divide is uh, irrespective of religion. People mm. of certain class, with whatever their religion is, are always more privileged. They are always the last ones to be victimized wherever. Mm. So it's always the poor and the people who are on the front line uh, who are the worst sufferers. Mm. I mean, people of a certain class will not be traveling in public transport. Mm. Uh, so their exposure to uh, vigilant mob is much mm. less. Or people of certain caste would not be living in a certain area so again, their uh, exposure to possible violence is less. So it, the, the class and the caste, both of these uh, impact upon how safe you are as an individual. You know, I want to go back to uh, when we started out this conversation and you said that your intention of writing this book was to actually try and appeal to the Muslim community to come out of their regression, become more progressive, become more educated. And as an educated progressive Muslim, I've always had that, you know, in my head. 
that why can't Muslims be more progressive? Why is it that as a community, we're always coming up with these fatwas and this certain kind of, you know, positioning that we have, stereotyping. Why can't we fight back in a progressive manner? But you say in the course of the research of this book, you found that Muslims in India find themselves in a almost kind of, uh, you know, a whirlpool where it's, it's sucking them into being the way they are. So I want you to tell us and the listeners of the note on what really did you realize? What did your research tell you? See, Muslims have always had a bit of a resistance to secular education. This is a historic fact and it is not uh, specific to India. It's all over the Muslim world. There has been a resistance and the history goes back to uh, the 11th and the 12th centuries, not 11th, mm. the 13th mm. century when this concept of uh, only religious education being uh, important for a Muslim was uh, propounded. So there have been people among the Muslim people who have insisted that the community only uh, undertake religious education. So when this whole Sayyid Ahmad Khan movement started with Aligarh and everything, there was huge resistance from the community itself towards Aligarh uh, University and this secular kind of education. This lack of secular or non-religious education has had a cascading impact on their intellectual development because intellect is work in progress. You, you cannot suddenly wake wake up one day and become an intellect. I mean, <laughs> it takes years of education and probably generation on generation. When you are mm. educated, your mind, you know, mind is like a muscle. So it, it is exercise. So it becomes supple to receive new ideas, to challenge old ideas or to keep questioning what you hear or read. So this process happened in a very slow fashion for the Muslim community. In India, it was slow. But whatever was achieved post-1857, uh, either through Aligarh uh, movement or through exposure with the British and a lot of Muslim uh, landlords started sending their kids abroad and they came back, they were in civil services, in military services and doing reasonably well intellectually, financially, socially. But when the partition happened, this entire chunk, it shifted to Pakistan. So what was left behind, were again, that you know, this mass of semi-literate uh, people who are also financially impoverished as compared to the ones who had left. Mm. So we were, the manner was speaking, we were back to <laughs> the starting point. So th this has led to a progressive degradation of their uh, intellectual abilities. So even when they started all over again to study, to, uh, you know, embrace modern education, the process has been slower than other communities, which is why they are now worse than even the scheduled caste uh, in terms of their education levels. So the literacy levels are at par with others because most of them are Quran literate. Uh, right. so they can read, but mm. uh, they are not educated. I mean, they, this literacy is of no good when you are seeking a career or you're trying to mm. create a secular life outside your domain of your religion. Mm. But this has been their biggest problem. Mm. And because of this problem, they have been extremely susceptible to being misled by mm. both vested interests as well as by the ulemas because they do not know any better mm. because of 
these decades and decades of uh, backwardness, uh, mental, intellectual backwardness, has uh, made them extremely vulnerable to being uh, misguided and also insecure about their own judgment. So because they don't trust their own judgment, they have to constantly seek approval from others. They have to, and that is how this whole fatwa industry uh, functions. Because you are so unsure of your own judgment, you don't know whether I'm doing the right thing or not. Even mm. if you're following all the tenets of Islam, even if you're doing your kalma, namaz, roza, zakat, hajj, everything. But despite that, you are never too sure that am I on the right path? And you need to constantly ask people or who you think are better educated than you in the religious domain for advice. And when you are trusting somebody else's judgment more than your own judgment, then obviously you are actually putting your life in his hand. So isn't this like a catch-22 for an Indian Muslim, right? You have fear, you ghettoize, you live in a certain environment, your education is impacted because of that, you obviously don't have too many employment opportunities, then you gravitate towards religion in a more rabid way, perhaps those who are, you know, guiding you are not very qualified themselves. So how do you get out of this? It's a, very, it's a long haul, which is why I think we need multi-pronged approach to tackle this situation. And I think the kind of political environment that we are living in today, it's almost foolhardy to expect that the state will do anything to better your lot, uh, except for bailiff service. So Muslims have to really do things in a more proactive manner. They have to institute scholarships, they have to finance uh, students uh, for secular education in schools, and probably they cannot compete and get into uh, good institutions. So uh, maybe certain number of seats could be sponsored for them. I mean, I'm not talking using the word reservation, but somebody could pay for them in uh, private universities or private institutions. See, one of our uh, problems which I encountered in the course of uh, my research was that a lot of Muslims, again, driven by fear probably or insecurity, the, those who have the means do not want to be seen to be helping the Muslims. They want to be seen as even-handed, as um, secular in their uh, disposal of wealth, mm. which is a noble idea. But uh, if you want to help your community, then you have to be little less even-handed. You have to do a little bit more for... Uh, people who need it more. Mm. Uh, there is another thing which I do not uh, agree with, uh, and a lot of people keep insisting on this, that uh, we should reward merit, that anybody who's meritorious should have an opportunity to get in the best of institutions. So mm. our whole scholarship system is driven by merit. But I think the scholarship system should not be based on merit. It should be based on need. A person who actually needs it should get it whether he or she is meritorious or not, is it, because they are not starting from the same point. So average Muslim cannot compete with the average upper caste Hindu pupil mm. in the same institution. He just, they cannot compete. Forget about the resources they had while they were preparing for their entrance. Even their mental capacity, their intellect capacity is not at par. And let's face it, it's, it's not an appropriate thing to say, but I feel that Muslims, on an average, are intellectually weaker than other communities, upper caste Hindu communities. Mm. They, they are unable, I mean, there are exceptions, of course. There are yes. absolutely brilliant Muslims also. 
I'm taking an average. So these are the people who need uh, more handholding, more outreach, because we cannot ask the government to uh, give us reservations. It is not correct. It is not appropriate also, and it will not happen. Mm. So if the community can do this together, if you have this huge uh, millionaires and uh, billionaires among Muslims, at least a few of them are there. If they could institute scholarships, if they could institute seats, reserve them uh, through sponsorship by paying for them or by sponsoring another child in lieu of uh, one Muslim child. I mean, mechanisms can be made or built. Yes. So probably we could do some kind of a serious outreach to help the community get out of this morass. One Aligarh University or one Jamia Milia uh, is not enough. And the worst part is a Jamia Milia or a Aligarh is always viewed with suspicion, is always exploited by vested interests, both among the Muslim communities and the Outside. uh, outsiders. I mean, you see this whole Simi movement. It came yes. from, uh, which was, uh, you know, the university student organization was exploited by Jamaat Islami. I mean, yes. these are uh, matters of record. So a Muslim or a, a ghettoized institution of learning will always have limited utility. So we need to broad base this. Very interesting point that you make. And I want to bring here, one is that the community itself helping others. The other is, and you point towards that in the book as well, is it that Muslims, while being a strategic vote bank, have not really managed to become a political force? I think even... A vote bank has always been a misnomer because it's not a monolith community and they do not vote in a particular way all across India. So maybe a vote bank, uh, let's say when uh, Imam Bukhari uh, says something in Delhi, maybe it would sway the Muslims of this particular region, parts of old Delhi, maybe parts of UP. Mm. Uh, but it will not really have any impact upon Muslims in Bombay mm. uh, or Muslims in Chennai. Mm. So uh, this vote bank thing is very limited. I think we treat it as a bigger issue than it actually is. Mm. As far as the political force is concerned, see, they are so widespread all over India. So their votes are divided in their regions. So they could never as one community, they can never become a political force. They can only become a political force if all Muslims, all the all 15% of the population were voting en masse to, towards, towards one. one mm. Which doesn't happen because mm. our politics is so protected now. And mm. uh, we have so many regional parties vying for their attention. And so uh, what perhaps I meant as a political force was uh, having some kind of, uh, you know, representation in various institutions of uh, political activity. Even that representation has dwindled over the years. Do you think that will also impact the position of the Indian Muslim? See, we have had sporadic representation in various institutions, whether it's mm. administration or uh, non-government organizations, we've had. But the problem with the Muslims is, and even in these institutions or in these administrative positions have been, that they do not want to be seen as supporting the Muslims. Hmm. So they actually go out of their way to uh, sometimes not support a Muslim. Hmm. In fact, instead of being even-handed, they sometimes are blindsided. They, they don't want to look at another Muslim in their organization because 
they feel that it will immediately impact upon uh, their reputation and their own prospects in that mm. particular setup. So that has been the biggest problem, which is why a Muslim representation, I feel, is meaningless. It means nothing. Even mm -hmm. if a Muslim is in a position of influence, he is not likely to help another Muslim. So it is better or it is uh, what helps the Muslims most are well-meaning non-Muslim people, people who are confident and actually being even-handed or maybe a bit, little more proactive in helping who they think need the help most. That's a very interesting point that you make, Azala. <laughs> I, I was talking on another forum and uh, Professor Amitabh Kundu was one of the panelists there. And he recounted an incident when he was in Jawaharlal Nehru University. Uh, he, uh, in his department, he had instituted a study. And the person who was uh, leading that study was some person called Shah. So Professor Kundu did not know that the Shah was a Muslim Shah. Mm -hmm. And uh, so a lot of researchers were applying to be part of this team. So there were two people who he met, uh, and both of them were Muslims, mm -hmm. uh, who had applied to be researchers, and Professor Kundu found them most appropriate. So mm -hmm. he told his uh, junior or whoever was leading the study, this Mr. Shah, that uh, I recommend that you take these two researchers. Uh, they have done a lot of field work, and they're very they're appropriate. This person refused to meet them. And this dragged on for a couple of days. So these researchers got back in touch with Professor Kundu and said that uh, we have not heard you said you will get the position. So uh, Professor Kundu presumed that Mr. Shah was a very communal Hindu person who didn't want Muslims in his team. <laughs> so he uh, lambasted him and he said that, uh, look, uh, you know, I will not tolerate this kind of communal behavior and why aren't you taking these people? And then it turned out that Mr. Shah was also a Muslim. <laughs> and he said, sir, if I take two Muslims in my team, I will not get my next position. <laughs> what a I tragedy. Take, yeah. He said, I what a tragedy. But uh, I want to ask you an extremely broad-based question, and I know we would require hours for you to answer this. But for our viewers, and I think a lot of listeners would want to know this, how has Islam evolved in India? And has it evolved differently in different parts of India compared to the rest of the world? How has it evolved in India compared to the rest of the world? And within the country, if you could give me, a, if possible, a concise answer to this. <laughs> I try very hard. <laughs> uh, see, uh, in a very generic way, there, there have been three ways in which Islam came to India. One was well-established. One there was traders, business people who had been coming here even before Islam came to Arabia. So there was a social, uh, cultural, economic engagement with the uh, Arabia and the coastal belt of uh, the entire Malabar coastal belt. So this was the earliest engagement of uh, Indians with Islam. Hmm. Along with them, uh, the Sufis also came because when you're traveling, there are some people who are Sufis uh, along and they came with the traders. And then the third was the invaders. Invaders came in the north. So the northern part of the country and the eastern part of the country, you know, Assam and further on, their exposure to Islam happened through uh, invaders who came from uh, Turkey, Central Asia, Afghanistan, parts of Iran. Mm. The Sufis were part, from parts of Iran. The southern belt uh, got exposed to uh, traders and the Sufis. So the Sufis was a common factor among the traders and the invaders. So their outreach into the Indian heartland has been the widest because they came both through from Arabia 
and from Persia, Central Asia, from all over the Eastern and the Northern region. And they spread all over India. So which is why the Indian Islam, which grew out of this confluence or the engagement, took root in a very geographical manner. So Muslim in uh, Kerala was very distinct from a Muslim in uh, Bengal. Mm. Or a Muslim in uh, UP was very different from a Muslim in Gujarat. So all, all of them were very rooted in the geography. And religion in any case, even in Arabia when Islam came, it was a very geographical religion because mm. a lot of Arabian practices became part of Islamic practices. I mean, right. there were practices which were pre-Islam practices of Arabia, which eventually got enmeshed with, uh, you know, I keep giving this example of female circumcision. Now, mm. Islam has nothing to say on female circumcision, but because it was practiced by certain tribes of Arabia, so even after they became Muslims, they continued to practice it. Mm. Similarly, in India, uh, you see uh, people in West Bengal or in Bengal, uh, United Bengal also, uh, their practice of Islam was very closely linked with the uh, Hindu practices also. I mean, in their term, the way they dressed, in the in their attire, their bindi, wearing a bindi or wearing Mangal Sutra. For some reason, my women in my family wear Mangal Sutra. I have no idea why they wear it. My mother mm. always wore a Mangal Sutra. So in this way, manner, I don't know why... Uh, or how this happened. But mm. Islam has been extremely geographically rooted religion in India, which is mm. why it has never become a monolith religion. Mm. Even these sects that we have seen, the emergence of these sects, whether it's Deobandi or Barelvi, they mm. were originally located or limited to Northern Belt, which is mm. the UP. Uh, Bareilly is in UP and Deoband is also in UP, so now Uttarakhand. So uh, they came here their reach for a very long time was limited to these regions. It is only when funding came from outside India that their reach started to spread all over India. And now they have uh, their institutions, their uh, madrasas. I mean, Deoband has far uh, greater reach than Bareilly, but they're hugely widespread all over India. So some right. sort of monolith or some sort of uniformities have started to come in in the last two decades. But uh, this is a new change. This is a change that is happening, a new development, but it's still limited in uh, volume. We still have very, let's say, native Muslims in India. Native Muslims. Interesting. I'm going to ask one question. I, uh, uh, before we started the conversation, I was uh, mentioning this to you. Where do Muslims like you and me find ourselves in? Where are we? We are seen as suspicion by a certain section of the Muslim community. We find ourselves alienated from another section who views Muslims by and large with suspicion. I would like to call ourselves moderate and progressive. Where does this moderate progressive Muslim today find himself or herself in? I think one, there are dwindling people. <laughs> <Numbers>. <laughs> okay. There are too many. Uh, and also, I think they are in a slightly disadvantageous position because they are viewed as uh, sellouts to the Muslim community by the majority, by majority of the Muslim family. And the majority community in any case, the Hindus, uh, in any case, never make a distinction uh, between a progressive or a non-progressive Muslims when they have to 
uh, when they're driven by their prejudice. Uh, mm. They look at a Muslim uh, as a progressive only when they're doing their profiling. So mm. they put you in a bracket that, okay, so you are progressive, you are uh, conservative. But when it comes to their prejudice, when it comes to their dislike for you or uh, their propaganda against you, then they do not see whether you are progressive or you are a conservative or you are a the fundamentalist or a radical. Or, mm. Then these definitions do not matter. So I think the uh, community, the progressive uh, or moderate Muslims are in a very bad situation, uh, so to speak. But on the other side, they are also in a, I would say, a slightly privileged uh, situation because they have had the exposure of the best of both worlds. Mm. And they have had the understanding or uh, maybe sense to see what is wrong within their own community and what is wrong in the other community. So they're in a better position to uh, initiate this uh, interfaith or intercommunity dialogue. So these are actually the people we must really hold dear. We <laughs> must treasure them and we <laughs> must hope that their tribe increases because they are eventually the people who can uh, do so much more for their own community than uh, the Muslim activists. Okay, can. and uh, and I'm going to end this with my last question, which is that what does it mean to be a Muslim in India today? This is the first overriding question throughout, but I'm <laughs> going to ask this. And secondly, is it easier to radicalize a young Muslim today than it was perhaps a decade ago? I'll answer the second part first because it's yes. easier to answer. No, it's not easy to radicalize a Muslim today than it was a decade ago. Uh, I think uh, a larger number of Muslims now see through uh, vested interests who try and mislead them, which is why though there was a phase uh, where Muslims were getting influenced by events outside India, it is not happening any longer. Also, earlier, Muslims were not as proactive in reaching out to their own community and helping them or asserting themselves and their rights within India as they're doing now in the last few years. So I think they're being misled now or getting radicalized now that it's not happening any longer. And that's not possible any longer. Things have changed. I mean, this ship has sailed. Wonderful. What it means to be a Muslim is huge challenge. And it is... From my perspective, I'll tell you, I work in a very non-sectarian sort of an environment. Uh, I mean, I work in the domain of national security and defense. All the people that I have been interacting with for the uh, last um, 17 years uh, in the course of my work, uh, all kinds of people, nobody ever actually thought that I was a Muslim, really. I mean, I was not looked upon as a Muslim, and I have not done any work as a Muslim. I have just done work as a journalist working in these areas, working on defense and working on security and technology and industry and all that. So my this whole uh, career or professional trajectory has been like any other Indian person. Uh, it, it has My religion has played absolutely no role in that. But now that I have started focusing on the religion and I was forced to do this, I was driven to do this, in the last few years for by things, by events, which were not of my making, which were not of my choice. I mean, I, I didn't want these things to happen to me or these things to happen to my uh, immediate uh, environment as they were happening. 
So now, after the book has come out, a lot of people who have worked with me in the course of last 17 years, they have suddenly realized that I'm a Muslim. And I'm actually now saying that, oh, you know, Muslims are suffering so much and Muslims have been victims of this. So now I'm seen as the playing the victim card. So which is where a Muslim today is, that if you want to really flag certain issues which are troubling you or which you think are putting you down or putting your community down or are unjust as a citizen, you are immediately bracketed as a Muslim. If all this was being said by a non-Muslim, that person would not be viewed as uh, playing a victim card. But mm. now, because I have done this, so now everything that I was doing in the past, or if I was criticizing the government, so everything is now viewed as, uh, so I was a Muslim. So I was always, I always had an agenda, which is not, I mean, obviously it's not correct, but uh, this bracketing of a Muslim, irrespective of what that person's qualifications or achievements or uh, work has been, uh, is the worst thing that can happen uh, to any person. And this is uh, the state of people like you and me uh, today. Razala, I would have loved to continue, but time is a restriction in this podcast. But thank you so much for joining me, for your wonderful insights, and honestly, for this absolutely wonderful book. And I would recommend all the listeners of The Note to read it. It's It's not just if you are a Muslim or not, it's a it's a very, very important part of our history now. And I would say this is almost like a textbook that everybody should read. Thank you so much, Ghazala, for being on. The- Thank you so much for your wonderful words. <laughs> You've made my day. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. If you like this podcast, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can listen to us on the IVM podcast app or ivmpodcast.com. You can also follow us on our social media. We are at the rate IVM Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. And if you want to reach out to me, I'm Mahro Khinayat on Twitter and Mahro Khinayat on Instagram as well.